You're listening to the Westminster Pulpit, an online ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For more information, visit us online at www.westpca.com. To the letter of 2 John, one of the shortest letters in the Bible. We are coming to the end of this series on the letters of John. In fact, we will conclude in three weeks as we take up the final letter of John, uh, Third John. And uh, Pastor Light and I intend to begin a series in the fall from the Old Testament book of Judges. But uh, tonight, let us give our attention to this short uh, but impactful letter from the Apostle. He writes, The elder to the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not only not I only, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, will be with us in truth and love. It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. And now, dear lady, I'm not writing you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. Many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what you have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take him into your house or welcome him. Anyone who welcomes him shares in his wicked work. I have much to write to you, but I do not want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face, so that your joy may be complete. The children of your chosen sister send their greetings. This is the living and active word of God. Let us pray. Father, your word is penetrating in its power and in its simplicity. We ask that you might send your Holy Spirit to illumine this text, to open our eyes and our hearts, that we might behold the treasures that lie here within. Teach us, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. For years now, with each of our children, my wife and I have taken our children when they're infants and create a stepping stone. If you know the mixes you get at the arts and crafts store, there's a mix you can make and you take the children and put their handprints or their footprints and we give these as gifts to the grandparents who live far away so they can make stepping stone walkways through their yard and uh, rose bushes and so forth. Now, if you've ever used this mix, you, you know that it's a quite messy 
process, especially when you have a one-year-old child to press handprints into it. And that's why we usually wait until the child is sleeping and then pull them out and stick the hands on before they wake up and can grab the gritty material in their little fists. But if you've ever worked with this stuff, you, you realize that the powder, the concrete powder in of itself is worthless unless you add water. But you have to be very, very careful because if you don't add enough water, the, the consistency is not soft enough to impress the handprints and the letters for the name and all the stone decorations. But if you add too much water, it's runny. And it doesn't set right, and it doesn't establish the impression that you want it to have. Well, and, and, and furthermore, you have to wait to the right moment that the, that the texture, the consistency is ready to impress the little, little hand and feet prints. And of course, once that solution is dry, it's, it's a done deal. It's fixed, and you can't go back. Well, just as we might take great precaution in preparing loving gifts for family members. So the local church community must be careful in the way we handle the truth. The truth is delicate. And the way we impress the truth on others is vital. Scripture repeatedly tells us to guard the truth. And just as that concrete powder is not effective without water. So truth is ineffective without love. The elder writes to a local church, exhorting them to love one another and to essentially hold on to the truth. And it's the actual parallels of this letter with the first letter of John, and the Gospel of John that gives us a lot of confidence that this is indeed the Apostle John's letter. Even though there's no mention of his name, it's simply from the elder. Well, who is, who is the elder and what does that mean? Well, we, we do know that, that we can conclude that the author of this letter must have been very well known. So much, in fact, he hardly needed an introduction to the early church. And we also know from history and tradition that John was the oldest surviving member of the apostolic company. And so it's a very reasonable explanation that the aged Apostle John, who was the last surviving forefather of the faith, embraced the title, the elder, as he imparted final words of wisdom before he went into glory. This letter is addressed to the elect lady and to her children. Now, it's possible this is an individual, uh, a woman, a mother, and her children, but it's more likely this is a personification of a local church and its membership. In fact, the, the final line in verse 13 indicates that this is, the greetings are coming from the chosen sister, which would be the local church where John is currently ministering. John says to this church body that he loves them in the truth. He anchors his personal love in a foundation of truth, this truth that lives in us and will remain with us forever. John will go on to commend them even as he begins to warn 
this local church because they are vulnerable to the deceits of the enemy, just like we are today. You and I forget the truth. We believe lies. We fail to love. We give in to hate. Our fallen nature lends itself to sloth and negligence of these two vital characteristics of the Christian life. And so we need an exhortation to make truth and love manifest in our lives, even as we look to him who is the truth and who is love, who is our source and our guide. John's greeting in verse 3 is very similar to greetings in the New Testament with perhaps a few, few differences. He includes, like Paul, grace and peace and adds to it mercy. And so John looks to God's grace, the peace of Christ, the mercy of our loving Father to bestow his blessing upon this local church. Of course, void of these divine riches would impoverish us. He adds in this greeting a very important preposition, the word from, that is very intentionally added before the word God and before Jesus Christ. And this is an intentional move by the apostle, and we believe to affirm both the unique sonship of Jesus Christ and his co-eternal Godhead with the Father. Jesus is not inferior. He is not lacking in any power and glory. The Son of God is fully God with the Father. And so from this source of triune power and love, we begin a foundation that love and truth are from God. And so building from this starting point, John proceeds to give them his command. But it comes in context first of an affirmation. John expresses his joy hearing the report that many of the children are walking in the truth. The members of this church body are living out their call to love one another. Occasionally, I'll call my wife in the middle of the day or come home from the office, and I'll ask her how she's doing and how are the kids today? And it's a joy when I hear a report that they've been obedient to their mother. Otherwise, I have to put on my cop hat and drag our children to the judge, which is also played by dad, and discipline this rowdy bunch. And so, like a father, this elder has great joy in hearing that the children are living in the manner in which the father has commanded them. Nevertheless, John, in verse 5, is compelled to exhort the brothers and sisters to love one another. This is not a new command But an old command, this is not a different command, this is the same command they've heard from the very beginning. You know, we can grow tired of hearing the same thing over and over. We may like a song for a while and we grow sick of it over repeated hearings. We can remember times when we heard our parents say the same thing over and over again. Wash your hands. Use soap. Stop smacking. Don't hit your brother. 
all the things that are true and good for us that we need to listen to. But some of us can have the same juvenile attitude towards this call of love. We, we don't want to hear it. It's hard. We're, we're not very good at it. It'd be so much easier if we could just be cool or fun, if we could just remain private or orderly. You see, love is messy. See, people who love get themselves into trouble. Jesus ended up on a cross. People who love can be taken advantage of. Loving people appear foolish before a watching world. And yet, Jesus sacrificed himself for us, giving us an example of how to love one another. Loving one another means we forgive those who sin against us. Love means overlooking petty insults. Love means not taking comments or criticisms too seriously because love covers over a multitude of sins. Love means giving up something we want out of deference to another. That last piece of chocolate cake. Or perhaps something more serious, where we're, or the call of love requires us to sacrifice our time, our money. It may even cost us part of our reputation. You see, love alters our lives, sending our orbit outside of ourselves, beyond ourselves, to encircle the will of God out of the, for the good in service of other people. In verse 6, John establishes a context for love. He actually qualifies this command to love one another. You see, love actually needs some definition. We think we know what love is, and yet we easily get confused. You know, our love can become self-serving. Our love can be worldly and not truly God-glorifying. So love, John says, this is love, walking in obedience to the Father's commands. Love is defined by truth. See, it's like music. You know, someone may have a beautiful voice for singing or wonderful talent for playing an instrument, but without notes to guide him or her, it's just mere noise. Or a little child that loves to bang on the pots and pans. That's not music. That's annoying. But love needs direction. Love also needs boundaries. A month ago, my family went up to Niagara Falls. And we enjoyed just gazing at the wonder and the beauty of tens of thousands of gallons pouring over the edge every second, hurling hundreds of feet down to the bottom of the falls. And as we, enjoy, as we enjoyed gazing this, our, our enjoyment was limited by a guardrail that stretched all along the Canadian park overlooking the falls. And of course, that, that guardrail is there for our protection, that we might enjoy the falls and be safe 
while doing so. Likewise, the commands of God are rooted in truth and serve as boundary markers that we might enjoy God's goodness and share in his love with others. Love and truth go together. One way that they are combined is in the spirit of unity. You see, truth binds things together. Churches may split over all kinds of petty things, but it's not truth that divides churches. It's a failure to adhere to the truth. Fellowship is created by truth and expressed through love. Now, there's all kinds of ecumenical movements these days, and these can be good in and of themselves, but however well-intentioned they might be, we must never compromise truth to satisfy other agendas. Love and truth must be bound together in unity. Love and truth are also come together in freedom. We live in a culture that loves and cherishes our freedom, even to the point of abuse. You see, unchecked freedom is like a man riding a horse without a bridle. And so it's lacking direction, lacking control off into danger. Freedom, true freedom, is not the lack of constraints. True freedom is not the freedom to break God's laws, but rather to keep them for our protection, for God's glory. And true freedom is experienced when love and truth are bound together. Thirdly, love and truth are best expressed through faith. Just as love is not mere emotion, faith is not mere intuition. Our belief is not a basis of faith and faith. Our faith is rooted in truth as a foundation. And that's why in Scripture, faith is given as a command, just as we are commanded to love as an outworking of our faith rooted in the truth. Well, we've considered this call to love one another in the truth. But at this point, in verses 7 through 11, John shifts gears to help us understand how we might hold on to the truth in love. And as he shifts gears in verses 7 through 11, he shifts focus from the wheat to the tares, from the faithful church to the false teachers. He says in verse 7 that many deceivers have gone out into the world. These are imposters. These are fakes. These are men who ape the apostolic ministry of Christ to spread lies. They are wolves in sheep's clothing, as Jesus foretold. These men fail to acknowledge the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, a clear reference to the incarnation of Christ. And so what's at stake here is the identity of the Redeemer, holding on to the truth that Jesus was both fully God and fully man. Anyone who rejects this orthodox teaching, John calls the Antichrist. These deceivers are those who pretend, 
who only hold to a partial truth. They pull wool over the eyes of would-be believers, appearing faithful but concealing their false motives to kill, to steal, and destroy. We must uphold the truth by identifying them, to watch out for them, as John says in verse 8. We watch out that we might not lose our reward, that which we worked hard for. John is essentially saying in verse 8, don't get sidetracked. Don't be distracted. Any swimmer or sprinter knows that as you're coming home to the finish line, to turn and look at your fellow competitors could cost you the race. Likewise, in the Christian life, we are called to run with our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And our goal is to finish is to win the race and to not veer off and be disqualified. In verse 9, the apostle gives another apt illustration, warning us against those who run on ahead, ahead of the teachings of Christ. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teachings of Christ does not have God. Whenever my family goes out into public, we have to be careful that our children don't run on ahead of us and get lost in the crowd or veer off the wrong alternative route in the mall. And yes, sometimes we have to do a head count, make sure they're with us. Likewise, if a caravan of cars is moving in a destination along the highway, it would be presumptuous and foolish of somebody who doesn't know the way to get ahead of the lead car. And so risk missing the exit and losing their way. John's warning to us is don't don't follow those who will run on ahead and fail to continue in the gospel. Many scholars suppose that this go-ahead view of heretics was a teaching of pre-Gnostics, proto-Gnostics, who basically taught their adherents to advance beyond the rudiments of the faith. They would essentially shame the Christians who were content with holding to the simple gospel of Christ. We find that today with those who mock the simplicity of the gospel message, trying to pull us into another kind of spirituality that's not rooted in Christ. But interestingly, John responds to this behavior of the false teachers with sarcasm, suggesting that these people presume to run so far ahead that they leave God behind. Such false teaching is an abandonment of Christ. It is out of bounds. It is beyond the scope of the gospel. Imagine a building contractor who's been contracted to use some land and build up an apartment complex. But that contractor decides he's not content with building a simple apartment complex. He wants to build a shopping mall to add that to his resume. We can only imagine the owner of the land, the client, being irate. Because he was looking for home renters not retail renters. And so the development has become worthless to him. 
just as any good contractor must stay within his bounds, must follow the scope of the project. So we as believers must stay within the bounds of the gospel. That we may stay within the scope of believing on Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, who died, who sacrificed his own life, that we might have salvation through faith in his precious blood. Any teaching that strays from that clear guidance is to be rejected. You see, to advance beyond Christ is not progress, but apostasy. Think of it in terms of school. We, you and I will never graduate from the school of the gospel. It's like we have to take the class Gospel 101 over and over and over again. No matter how many times we pass it, no matter how many times we fail it, we have to keep taking this class, Gospel 101. But the beautiful thing about Gospel 101 is that we grow in our appreciation. We grow in our understanding and marveling at the wisdom of God, at the beauty of Christ, at the riches of our inheritance that is secured for us forever. Well, how do we apply these things perhaps to our own households? I think one point to take from this is that truth must be the bedrock of every Christian household. That we have a calling as husbands and wives, as fathers and mothers, as family members. We have a duty to guard our homes from danger, from false teaching. It seems like it's becoming harder and harder to protect the home from the encroachments and the intrusions of all kinds of false things. You may not have false teachers knocking on your doors, but they're coming in through the television, through commercials, through the radio, through the internet. And I believe our Christian calling is to be a good gatekeeper. Just as you put screens and and filters on your computer to guard against spam mail, we need to have good filters to evaluate, to engage with the things that we're hearing, the things that our children are hearing. And we need to test everything to compare it to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, this summer, my wife and I have had a real battle with ants. They get into the kitchen. They get into the garage. And our first strategy was to do a great job cleaning up all the kitty crumbs and all the stuff. And no matter, no matter what you do, though, ants always find something to eat and get into. And so we had these ant traps from last year that proved not, proved not very effective. And we really were kind of frustrated until we discovered taro. You all know taro? The king of ant baits. This stuff is awesome. It attracts and kills all kinds of ants. Big ants, little ants, red ants, black ants. They all love it. The only danger is it's liquid and messy. And if your two-year-old gets into it, it ends up all over the floor. But just as we had to be diligent and vigilant to try to get rid of the ants, so we have to guard our home and our hearts from the pests that come into our lives to uh, seduce us, to draw us away from our fidelity to Christ. Well, just as we need to be vigilant to hold on to the truth, 
our biblical calling is to hold the truth in love. Even, especially when we're called to do hard things. And so, perhaps the hardest thing that John gives to this church comes in verses 10 and 11, where he applies this teaching of upholding the truth, commanding the people to essentially keep the false teachers out. You see, apparently false teachers went on circuit, and they sought hospitality in Christian homes, perhaps sought an audience in the fellowship and gathering of believers. And these Christians are called to be bold, to not receive them into their homes, to not welcome them. And that's hard, because we're called to hospitality, we're called to be gracious and loving, but not when it's partnering with lies. As I thought about that situation in the first century and how we might apply it to our own day, imagine the difference between your friendly outreach to a Mormon neighbor. You might have Mormon neighbors over for dinner and discussion and relationship building. That's a far different thing from inviting Mormon missionaries into your home to live while they go out propagating their teaching and making converts in your community. One of the missionaries that I have a lot of respect for is Anise Zaka, who we support with a church without walls. One characteristic of his ministry is building communities of dialogue between Christians and Muslims in an effort to persuade adherents to Islam to switch their allegiance to Christ. I believe Anise and others who've gone before him, like Francis Schaeffer, do a great job modeling for us how to speak the truth in love. And as we think about our own situation, perhaps we're not disputing with non-believers or heretics, but we can apply this principle even when we're, dis- when we're disputing points of doctrine with fellow believers with whom we might disagree. A belligerent attitude is never acceptable for a Christian. Rather, our zeal and passion for the truth must always be tempered by love. My children love Plato, and not the Greek philosopher, but that stuff that gets stuck in your carpet, that gets ground in the grooves of the kitchen table leaf, and you have to scrape it out with a knife. And you always kind of wonder how this diminishing return, how come the Play-Doh keeps diminishing in its quantity? Well, I understand it's edible, so we have an idea of where that extra Play-Doh ends up. Well, any keen observer of Play-Doh will realize that as long as it's contained within its container with the lid on, it stays basically soft and fresh. But if it's left out for a while and exposed to the air, It grows hard. Well, the same, it's the same principle with truth. Truth that is not accompanied by love grows hard. Truth without love can even harden others against the truth. Just as love grows soft without truth. So truth becomes hard without love. 
And while our love for others must not undermine our loyalty to the truth, we must never communicate the truth with the absence of love. This applies to situations in the church. If we're called to discipline somebody who is in grievous sin and needs repentance, any approach of confrontation must always be in an attitude and a spirit of love, compassion, and gentleness. Parents are called to discipline their children, confronting them with the truth, but in a spirit and an attitude of love. And in our relationships with other believers, do we love them enough to point out to them things that might be dishonoring to Christ? bringing to bear the truth of God's word in a spirit of humility, graciousness and kindness, that we might fulfill the law of love to our brothers and sisters in Christ. It was our Lord Jesus who is the model for us, who spoke the truth in love with great boldness, with great compassion, confronting Peter, restoring him to his role of disciple. Steering Thomas away from skepticism to belief. Confronting Saul on the road to Damascus and lovingly recruiting him to be an apostle of the gospel ministry. But the Lord Jesus not only spoke the truth, Jesus is the truth. He is the way and the life. Truth, you see, is not some abstract idea. Truth is a person. And our commitment to the truth must be no less than our allegiance to Christ. John also records in his first letter that God is love. Love is not an invention of man. It's not the monopoly of young lovers. Rather, love comes from God. God is love. And so the only way that you and I might fulfill our calling to love with truth is to stay identified with him who is love and truth. Imagine getting on board a ship where all the passengers get on one side and all the cargo is shifted to one side. That's going to be a lopsided ship. It will not sail right. And sometimes Christians can favor one of these extremes. Well, I'm committed to truth. Well, over here we're committed to love. And we can become just as lopsided when we fail to preserve a balance of keeping the two in focus through eyes of faith. You see, our commitment to truth and love comes through our union with Christ. And it's only as we are united with him by faith that truth and love can be manifest in us and be communicated to others with any kind of godly consistency. And so, friend, let us look to him, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who is truth, the one who loved us and gave himself for us, that he might be glorified in us through lives well-lived in love and truth. Dear gracious God, our Father, 
We thank you for manifesting your love to us, for revealing your truth to us. We pray, O Lord, that we might follow in our Savior's footsteps, identified with him by faith, that you might express your love and your truth through us for the benefit of others, for the glory of God in Christ. We pray in his precious name. Amen.